He is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney. He is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. Oh, what a world, what a life, what a day. Saturday, May 15, 2021, our 44th podcast, but unlike any other. First guest, Joshua Thales. He's in the spotlight because his beautiful daughter, Isabella Joy Thales, gunned down in downtown Denver, June 10, 2020, as she walked the dog with her boyfriend, Darian Simon. Darian Simon is my client. Josh Maximon represents Josh Thales, father of the late, beautiful Bella. You are going to hear from Josh Thales, Josh Maximon in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge, our troubadour with the perfect song. You and I start now. Our show starts right now. Gosh, I like this man. I met him and talked with him. It's in connection with the case I'm handling, but I'd like you to get to know Josh Thales. Josh Thales, thanks a lot for coming on my podcast. Absolutely. I came to realize that you and I have a lot in common. Seems we're both Denver boys, right? Yes, sir. What part of Denver did you grow up in? I grew up in Southeast Denver, so I'm pretty seated in the community. Not just Southeast Denver, Virginia Village, right around Ellis Elementary, <laughs> where we both went to school. I take pride in that. It's a working class neighborhood. How would you describe the area, the residences around Ellis Elementary at Dahlia in Mexico and Denver? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a working class. We didn't grow up super rich. I mean, obviously, it's not a Impoverished community or anything like that, but you know, it's a working class community. We grew up working hard and taking care of the things we had. You know, we took a lot of pride in getting the yard mowed and taking care of older cars and mowing the elderly's lawn next door kind of thing. And it's still that way in that neighborhood. Now you bring up cars. Is that a passion of yours? It is, yeah. <laughs> we grew up before it was kind of the cliche thing working on cars and motorcycles in the garage and. My first car was a 1970 Chevelle, and I love old cars, love getting dirty and doing my own brake job and replacing a motor if needed or oil changes or whatever that might be. So, Well, where did you learn that? I know you went to George Washington, my alma mater. I don't recall an auto mechanic class there. Maybe there was, but I didn't take it. <laughs> yeah, definitely not auto mechanic class. They had some wood shop and metal shop and things like that, which I loved partake in but my dad growing up was an engineer so for us it was more of a survival technique than it was a commodity at that point something was broke on the car or something needed to be repaired on the house we you know old man kicked us off the couch said hey you guys gotta get up and handle this so i grew up three brothers and we all worked on the house and the cars and things like that growing up so Tell everybody about your time with the Patriots, the mighty, mighty Patriots of GW. Did you have a good time there? 
<laughs> I had a good time. I'm not sure if my teachers had a good time with me, but I had a good time there for sure. So definitely was involved, played sports there. I played baseball all four years. I did play football underneath Coach Feinsilver for a year, and I wrestled in my senior year as well. So definitely partaked in the school and proud to be a Patriot. Steve Feinsilver, son of the legendary late Sherman Feinsilver. We grew up around the block from each other. We were in the same class of 74. I want to hear wow. about your sports. Sounds like baseball was your main thing. Did you start? Did you set records? What did you do there? <laughs> well, I wish I set more records, but definitely walked on as a freshman, told the coach, hey, I'd like to play varsity. He laughed. He says, well, wh where did you play at before this? And I told him I played Little League T-ball with the YMCA, and he got a pretty good laugh out of that. He says, no, really, where did you play before this? And I said, I, I didn't play before this, but I know I'm as good as those guys out there. And he got a pretty good chuckle out of that. And my sophomore year, I started playing varsity, and the rest was history from there. And my forte was running bases, so I uh, led DPS and running bases for my senior year and definitely had the wheels underneath me to make it happen. So, so speed was your thing. Absolutely. Love the outfield, love running balls down, love getting on base and causing havoc out there. I bet during field day at Ellis Elementary, you won the Blue Ribbons. <laughs> Most of the times, yes. Shuttle run, mile run, that was kind of my thing. So loved it. I probably should have done track instead of baseball, but definitely love to get out there and be active regardless. Well, you set some records for stealing bases, something I never did. And you are talented in ways I can never imagine. Tell everybody right after high school, what kind of work did you get? I immediately jumped. You know, I had started life early with children. So for me, it was get busy working. You know, I, didn't, I had an opportunity to go to college. I had a couple scholarships that I unfortunately turned down just to get busy working to provide for my new family. So I immediately jumped into the grocery industry right there in my neighborhood, worked with Safeway for several years, bounced around a couple different industries within retail grocery. I was with King Supers and Whole Foods and Costco and kind of all over the board. And then as of late, I opened up a couple of the Trader Joe's here in Colorado. Good for you. That first grocery store experience, where was that at? Right there in the neighborhood in Southeast Denver. So that was at Monaco and Yale. I started off as a courtesy clerk and I worked my way through. They offered a program, retail leadership development through Safeway. And I took the opportunity. It was a eight-week, in essence, college class for grocery. And you learn the grocery store nice. front to back. So I learned every department in the store. And then from there, I was promoted out of there to become an assistant store manager and kind of pre keep progressing my way through the retail grocery industry. And you spent decades there. And you also illustrate the GW guys don't go too far. We go right down Monaco, right? In Port <laughs> Very true. Anyway, <laughs> we keep it close. <laughs> the thing that you did, I couldn't even get a date till I was in my 20s, but you started a family and you had a couple of kids. Tell us about your children. Yeah, I married my high school sweetheart right out of high school. We had children early. My oldest daughter, Isabella, was born. And then two years, almost to the day, two years and two days apart, her sister, Lucia, was born. 
I mean, that was everything I needed in life to try and stay together and stay focused. You know, I was a very young parent and probably not the most ideal parent. You know, when you're a child trying to raise children, it's probably not the best situations, but you do the best you can. We both had strong families behind us to live still in Southeast Denver. Both sides of the family do. I mean, we raised kids the best we knew how and by the grace of God, I'm very thankful that we had awesome grandparents there to help support that and raise them right there in the neighborhood. Well, I'm sure Lucy is a fantastic younger sister and daughter, your youngest child. But I want to focus on Isabella because Isabella was so special. And you told me that was evident from the moment she was born. Tell us where she was born and how that was apparent to you. Yeah, I mean, she was born right at the University Hospital. We, it's Rose now, but born right at Rose Hospital. As a dad, you have these grandioso ideas of your children and what their life would evolve to and look like. And, you know, starting from the get-go of just naming your child. So I was pretty set and wanted the name Gabriella for Isabella and her mom decided, yeah, we're not going to have a Gabby and nothing against Gabby's, but she just didn't want a Gabby. So we ended up with Isabella and we call her Bella for short. And I was like, okay, well, if you get a name, name her the first name, I get to pick the second name. And I picked Joy for her middle name because that's what she's always been to me in life since before she was conceived was just a joy. I felt so full and so proud of her in that situation. I I wouldn't change it for anything. You've got two kids. I've got two kids, both boys. But I think any parent realizes that it's kind of a crapshoot. Some kids can be really pleasant, happy all the time. Others have a different disposition. Did she live up to that name, Joy? Boy, she picked it up and knocked it down daily. I mean, this young woman was something. And I say that very headstrong, but in a very powerful way. You know, she grew up, a lot of people, parenting style, didn't understand my parenting style. Oh, did you have problems with boyfriends and this and that? I, I never did. You know, I would try to be as hands off of situations like that as possible. And this young lady really grew to be super powerful in life. And I say that she was very involved community-wise, school-wise, straight-A student, pretty much no matter what she did. But the coolest part about Bella is just there was never a platform or an agenda for her. You know, we grew up teaching our children that race was not a thing. You know, politics, whether you're a Democrat or Republican or liberal or whatever you might be, is not a thing. We don't judge human beings and their characters based on categories. And she really lived that to the fullest young, old, black, white, Democratic, Republic. I mean, there was just never an agenda for her. And she really lived her life to the max that way. Just a very beautiful soul that touched a lot of human beings on a one-on-one -on -one note, on a human note. So, How was her high school experience? Where did she go? She did branch out. She went to Cherry Creek High School. She was a Bruin. She knew zero people there when she started school. Coming from Denver Public Schools in our neighborhood, most people in our neighborhood did not go to Cherry Creek. She was blessed enough to be there. She fit in immediately. She did gymnastics 
and was a part of the cheerleading squad there and DECA and a bunch of other different facets there. So she plugged in all the way there in a very large school. So it was really awesome. She wasn't just in DECA. She was a superstar in DECA, which is a program (laughs) for future business leaders and entrepreneurs. Tell us your pride as a father. What did she achieve? You know, she did make it to state. They traveled. They did go to New York and the Broadmoor here in Colorado and some other places. Really cool part about that is they got to go in the inner workings of MLB, Major League Baseball, uh, Google, and some of these other ones to really see the inner workings of business and money and philosophies, which is pretty powerful, I think, as a young human being. It's powerful as an adult to be able to see an inner working like that and see the pros and cons to to business. So Yeah, it's sort of like Shark Tank because the DECA competitors have to pitch a business, learn it, pitch it, and apparently Isabella was tremendous at it. Yeah, she was fantastic. She's always been very drawn to how to let an underdog be successful or win, and that's something that comes near and dear from me is, you know, we didn't have a whole lot growing up. So I always tried to promote them to be out of the box thinkers her and her sister and propel themselves to push forward and be a better rendition of themselves every single day. So for her, she really drew to the business workings, financial kind of side of things, which was really awesome to see, you know, I don't have daughters. I'm no expert on gymnastics, but you have to be fit. You have to have coordination. <laughs> she must have gotten that from her dad, and you have to be quick, right? Quick moves. What gymnastics events stand out in your mind? You know, she was a gymnast through and through and loved children. So she, as a job, took a job out south in Highlands Ranch at a gymnastics facility out there teaching young kids gymnastics and that was her love but you know i still love walking in the first time she tells me i'm gonna do cheerleading or gymnastics i was out at cherry creek and i walk in and i'm looking for and looking for and i can't find her in her practice and i'm like man where's this kid at i can't find her and i look up and they are throwing her in the air she was a flyer for cheerleading And when I say throw her in the air, I mean, I don't know how high these guys and gals were throwing her, but pretty amazing. My heart dropped. I'm like, oh, my gosh, (laughs) leave it to my kid to be the flyer. So very fit, very athletic lady for sure. Gosh, I hear the love of a father. I've never had a daughter. She was your oldest daughter. What was the relationship like between you and her? You know, we had a fantastic relationship and still super connected by soul. but. You know, as a dad, everything I did in life was for one thing, and that was her and her sister. You know, life-changing for me. It took me from some pretty poor choices in life and pretty dark places that I once lived and were at and brought me to a very different place. I thank God every day for her and her life to save mine, which she really changed my perspective. So having kids will do that regardless. Having special kids that are really planted two feet down, really draw the best out of everybody. So my relationship was strong. And like I said, a lot of people felt I was a disconnected dad or whatever that might be. My whole world revolved around 
Bella and Lucia and still does. So for me, that hands-off parenting style, you know, you work so hard to teach your kids right from wrong and morals. And, you know, as a parent, you shoot the arrow and you hope the arrow flies straight. And sometimes it doesn't, you know, there's things in life that choices are made and you're able to look back and say, Hey, you know, that was probably not the best decision. Maybe we need to reconsider and look at something different, but it's pretty awesome place to be in a relationship when a young person stands out the way she has all the way through life. You know, she was a pleaser. She looked after all walks of life, all animals. I mean, at any facet in life. So that's a pretty awesome place. But I wish I could have met Bella. And it seems to me, Josh, that taken as she was at such a young age, she's perfect. I don't think she made many wrong moves in her life. And I'm glad you had such a beautiful relationship with her. And I need to take you back to the sad events of almost a year ago now, June 10, every parent's worst nightmare. We're going to talk about a situation that's pending in Denver District Court. I represent Darian Simon, as you know. You are represented by one of the best lawyers in Colorado, Josh Maximon, and he's authorized us to talk about it, and Josh will be a guest of mine as well. But I need to bring you back to June 10 of 2020, pandemic's already on. Tell us about your life leading into that day and how it fell apart when you got a phone call? Yeah. Um, you know, obviously the pandemic has changed life as we know it, and I hope that has not become the new normal. We work really hard to break that. But I had transitioned out of retail grocery and started my own small business, doing some remodeling, working on houses, small handyman projects. And it was really flourishing and taking off. We were in the season of doing some late sprinkler turn-ons and, and whatnots, repairs for a company. I had been out that day, had a kind of a shorter list of things to do that day. Got home earlier in the afternoon and received a phone call from my youngest daughter. And she had a, a sound of panic in her voice, which was alarming right from the start. Um, and she says, Dad, I, uh, have you heard the news? I said, geez, Lucy, I'm, I'm just walking the door. Well, you know, what's going on? And she says, well, they said that two people have been shot in downtown Denver. I said, okay. She says, Bella and Darian have been shot, Dad. Um, so immediately as a parent, my, my heart drops. Um, and I'm trying to be as gathered as I could when I talk to her. And she says, well, they said one person is deceased and the other one is in surgery. I said, where are they at? Do you know what, where? And she says, DGH. Um, so we immediately got in the car and I went to DGH trying to find out what information I could find. Um, we pull up into the emergency parking and I get out and go inside. And um, right from the start, there was just not a whole lot of information. Nothing was being said. Um, I approached a couple Denver police in the lobby and said, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm here to find my daughter. And they said, we, we don't have any record of her here. Um, so I'm frantically trying to make phone calls and figure out where she is, what's happened, what's transpired. 
And at that point, I heard um, a surgeon walk by and say that uh, they had taken Darian into surgery. So at that point, I immediately knew um, that Bella had passed, So, uh, which drew us to downtown where her and Darian lived. And at that point, uh, the police presence was uh, of huge proportion down there when we started entering the ballpark course field area. So um, made our way in. And everything was roped off, and um, they have a white tent set up. And uh, as a father, you immediately start to break. And uh, I walked through the uh, police tape and started heading that way. Um, and that's where I was met by a police um, sergeant of some kind. and. Uh, he says, you're her dad. And I said, I am. And uh, he says, I am so sorry for your loss. And at that point, it just, you know, so surreal. It still feels so surreal. You know, a bad dream that you wish you could wake up from. You know, a parent's worst nightmare. I, I don't even know what you would say, a nightmare. So It is a nightmare. And I'm sorry that you experienced this, that police sergeant came up to you. Let's divert just a little bit to talk about the police and military, people in authority, in uniform. When the police sergeant came up to you, it sounds like he was a wonderful DPD sergeant. He consoled yeah. you, said the only words that you can really say to someone going through what you are. I'm sorry for your loss. And boy, we all are, Josh. Thank you. What was the Dallas family attitude toward police and law enforcement? Well, we love police. And I say that we have police in our family. We have police in our close-knit circle. We have ex-military, ex-police officer military um, in our direct family and bloodline. So, you know, we, we are pro-police. We are pro Pro black and blue, we are all about it. So there's a respect and a love there. And you said you did not have a whole lot of information when you went to DGH. That's what Denverites call Denver Health. We call it Denver General <laughs> Hospital. We were raised yes, that way. But I've been in a lot of situations representing people who have had tragic losses and what they're entitled to and what I try to deliver as an attorney and Josh Maximon the same. We want to give you information. And you arrive at DGH and you say, what happened? What's going on? And I'm sure when that sergeant talked to you, I don't know if you were in a position then to say, what happened? I mean, you above all people are entitled to that information. Is that the instinct that eventually hits you, Josh? I need to know what happened to my baby. Well, of course, as a father, you know, your job is to protect and fix and that as a dad my job is to protect and fix for my kids regardless you know even if there's poor decisions made that's my job so to be hit with that situation already loss of life my heart is shattered in a hundred pieces and have no concept of what this 
feeling is or what to do, I would hope that somebody steps up and says, hey, you know, here's the steps that this is going to proceed and, and follow. Um, and it didn't shake out like that. Tell us, what are your frustrations, Josh? Yeah, information has been very sparse from day one. So when all this kind of transpired, I went almost three weeks with a zero phone call from detectives, from Denver police, from, you know, I had a victim's advocate reach out, basically expressing condolences and trying to get therapy set up, which is awesome. But as far as information, just no information. And now we are almost a year into this. We're 11 months as of yesterday into this. And the information we knew then is pretty close to the information we know now. It's very sparse. It was all over the media, so I expect you saw the media reports, but a lot of critical questions were not asked or answered. Very true. We were trying to find information in detail on what exactly transpired that day. We know some of the backstory, very little. You know, there is black and white evidence to this case that, you know, as a parent, you're you're thankful for, for justice to be served. And as a parent, you're brokenhearted because you view it. And I say that there is black and white video surveillance footage beforehand, during the shooting and after the shooting. And it's, it's very raw. It's very hurtful. Um, but that's about the only evidence that's been shared um, so far in kind of how all this has transpired. And to inform the audience, there's a middle-aged white guy named Michael Close who apparently grew up in Lakewood and he had an apartment in the ballpark neighborhood and he shot out the window right into your beautiful daughter, killing her and wounding severely my client, Darian Simon. He tried to escape. He got caught in Pine Junction in Park County and he made a number of incriminating statements. This is not a whodunit, but there is a question. Why did the guy have an assault weapon in the AK-47 in Denver, Colorado? I expect you wanted an answer to that question. Am I right? Yeah, it definitely came up in conversation. I have a pretty candid way of reading human beings fairly well in life. And I could not put my finger on what this was. You know, this gentleman, since his arrest, is it's this very ego, pump my shoulders, nonchalant, non-worried feeling after a crime has happened. Almost that lackadaisical, I laugh kind of thing. And I know people respond in trauma different ways, but this very nonchalant feeling from him. So I couldn't put my finger on it. If it was like a white supremacy thing, I just, I could not figure it out. We later found out that he had very deep ties to Denver police, one of his best friends or his best friend since middle school as a Denver police sergeant which I don't care. I think it's awesome that people are friends with police. But the whole sidebar to this thing now is the weapon obtained that was used in the shooting of Darian and the murder of my daughter was registered to this police sergeant. Right, an AK-47. 
And that sergeant has been identified as Dan Politica. And what have the authorities told you about the relationship between Close and Politica? There's been very, very little said about it other than they were close friends. You know, I think at some point they said that possibly Michael Close was living or staying at one of his properties. And that's really about all we know that this weapon was obtained through this police sergeant. Right, but there's been a report that it was stolen from the police sergeant. What do you know about that? Very little. And that's kind of where the question and, and all of that start to draw up. You know, there's evidence of that we don't know of where this gun was obtained, how it came to be, where it was purchased, how it was sold. If it was sold, we, we don't know any of those things. We know that this weapon was reported stolen 10 to 12 days after the incarceration of Michael Close. That happened on June 10th, later in the day. Isabella and Darian were shot late morning. He was already captured late afternoon. And you are saying that you were told Politica reported it stolen, not that day, not that week, but later? Not prior to, not that day, not a, let me knock on your door and say, hey, Dan Politica, the weapon involved in a murder is registered to you. It was 10 to 12 days after this crime had been committed. Right. And the gun was recovered that day in the front seat of his car. Forensics showed that that was the murder weapon. I know this because of the preliminary hearing. We have a transcript. We can post it. But there are a lot of questions, good questions, that you just asked that we don't have answers. And it's not me or my podcast audience. It's you, the father of Bella. Who have you asked these questions and what do they say when you ask? You know, we've tried talking with DA, head DA for our case. We've reached out Denver police. Obviously, we've had to lean into attorneys now to try and seek information and the information is being held. They're saying at this point it's crucial to the case. Our question still almost after a year is, you know, what went on that day? We want to know the facts of what went on. And it's a pretty hard place to be in. Right. Apparently, Close had an argument with his girlfriend, Chelsea Thompson, who may or may not know Dan Politica. What about Dan Politica? Has he reached out to you? If he called after hearing this podcast and said, wow, Mr. Thales, I'm so sorry. Let me tell you everything I can about what I know let the chips fall where they may. Wouldn't that be a decent thing to do? My gosh, it would be life-changing. And I say that, you know, I ask for that. I ask for any kind of consideration as from a human standpoint. This doesn't even need to be from any kind of stance. It's just from a human standpoint of, of knowing the facts and having some consideration and respect for, for the situation and what's transpired. But we've had zero communication. I have been seeking information on behalf of my client, Darian Simon, and we've encountered the same stone wall. It doesn't make sense to me. Do you feel it's respectful or disrespectful of you and your family? 
we find it obviously super disrespectful, you know, and I think it's gotten to the point truly where, you know, our consideration and silence has almost become a complacency, you know, and, and it almost turns cowardly at a point, which is why I decided to open up and talk with you today, you know. I think it's time to speak up and speak out on what transpired that day. And, and we're ready. We've been ready as not just a family and friends group, but I think the community is ready also. I have hundreds of questions that hit my inboxes through Facebook and other social media plugs and ties I have to, um, voicemail of people having questions. It's a normal community and human being thing to have questions of what went on. And I don't have any answers for those. And it's really hard to keep telling people that I, I don't know. We don't know yet. I don't know. And I think that's a really unfair place to be, especially when you have a loss of life and Darian's trying to recover. It's just a, such a disrespectful place to be, in, to not have an answer. I was a prosecutor for 16 years. I was proud to represent the people of the state of Colorado. And that criminal trial that's pending, Michael Close has engaged in delay tactics. Now he's down in Pueblo. I know the guy will not get out of jail in our lifetimes, okay? He's going away, whether it's insanity or a conviction. This is a slam dunk case. But I'll tell you that it's brought in the name of the people of the state of Colorado whose dignity has been violated by this grotesque act with an assault weapon in the middle of the day in downtown Denver. And the people of the state of Colorado are entitled to know, and my God, Josh Thales, there was a law passed, signed into effect by Governor Polis for your beautiful daughter, Bella, and it all has to do with this report that a gun was stolen, but what is it based on? Do you even know? Well, that's the hard part to it. You know, I think there's just fantastic groundwork that is put in place. Obviously, that law is very specific to stolen weapons, which falls near and dear now to our family and the situation at hand. So I will never take away traction from something that's amazing. And I think it's a good base to start. But, you know, yet again, these laws are put in place for the law abiding. And this is not a law abiding situation. And we don't know. Yet again, there's a, a non-knowing of what transpired. Do you know whether the gun was really stolen or not? We don't know. It's complete speculation. You know, when something looks fishy and smells like fish, usually it's, it's, it's fish. Have something reported stolen after the fact weeks after the fact, days after the fact, it's very convenient. And I've, I've said this since day one when this all transpired and I finally had an opportunity to sit with DAs and lead detectives of Denver and prosecutors and all these human beings and judges to say, hey, here's the deal. Me as a father, I'm very different in life. I've lived very different. I've been very different places. I'm a pretty old soul for 41. I have all the time and resources in the world to find out the truth. And that's all we're looking for in this. And I say, turn over every rock. I don't think they anticipated what that is. And us as a family and a group to know that we will get as close to the truth when all of this is said and done as we possibly can. 
And out of all this, that's what we're looking for. Truth and to have accountability and justice to be served. We pray and hope there is no foul play in all this. I don't want that. I've never sought that out. I just want to know the truth of what went on. Or negligence. I just don't know how you steal an assault weapon. Was it just laying around the house? How did he gain access? And then if you were going to steal an assault weapon, why would you steal one from a Denver police sergeant? That seems risky. Very risky. Like I said, I... I don't know how that happens. I know responsible gun owners. You know, we grew up in a family of police officers and military and all different backgrounds where a respect for weapons was built. We knew where all the weapons in our home were and safely secured. We knew what load was in them. We knew where the extra magazines are. We knew the capabilities of all weapons at all times. They were always secured. So I think that's the hardest part for us as a family and community is asking the question of how, how did that happen? You know, for one, how is he not held to, he being Dan Politica, how is he not held to a higher standard? He's not just a police officer off the street beat and there's nothing wrong with those guys. He's a sergeant. That's not something that just happens to fall from your house you know, Michael Close was arrested with multiple clips that we know of. He was charged with five extra clips on top of the clip he used. That's not something that just happens to walk off. It's not a knife. It's not a pistol. This is an AK-47. This is a military-grade weapon. Right, and it costs a pretty penny, and Michael Close is facing a lot of charges, close to two dozen but is he charged with stealing that assault weapon? Have you asked that question? He's not. Right. Tell us about when you discuss that with the prosecutors. It's really hard because you get caught up in the whirlwind of, of what's going on in life and the loss of life and human beings involved to delve into specifics. And I say that, you know, this is a capital murder case. There's serious injury involved with Darian that is catastrophic and life-changing. And, you know, you, you fall into this lull of it's being handled, it's being taken care of because we have the best of the best on this case. And I believe we do. But as I'm trying to have a moment of clarity to myself a month back or so, I was thinking about the charges of Michael Close and running through scenarios in my mind. And I realized at that point, after reading through documentation, that he's not being charged with a stolen firearm. So I reached out to the DA and I asked that there's no firearm listed on here as being stolen. So did he have a stolen firearm or did he, did he not? So that conversation came up and it was missed. I don't know how it was missed. I don't know why it was missed. I don't know what that is. That's not my job to figure that out, but it was missed. And my whole point to that is you can't have your cake and eat it too. Either the weapon was stolen and Michael Close should be charged with a stolen weapon or the weapon was not stolen and Michael Close is not charged in possession of a stolen firearm. Right, and there's been some misleading going on. We read the media report about the weapon being stolen, but why no charge of theft of the assault weapon? 
And I asked the same question. I did not get a good answer. I can tell you as a former prosecutor and active Colorado trial lawyer, the complaint can be amended. That charge can be added. Why don't they do it if it really was stolen? Yep. And the conversation came up. It was discussed. And at the moment, the DAs let me know that it was missed. They would reconvene and re-talk about this after we get through some legalities of Michael Close's insanity plea, because it's a lot on their plate at the moment. I asked for their word to have this looked at again once we get through this insanity portion of this murder case. And that's the only information I know at the moment. I know this about you. You are a transparent person. And you want transparency in return. Do you think you've received it in this matter? I thrive on one thing, and I've raised my kids to be the same as transparency. So it's one of those for us that truth is everything. And I say that, you know, I I think it was Thomas Jefferson. I always told my kids, you know, honesty is always that first chapter of the book. It's the first chapter of a wisdom book. So A lot of things can be fixed and dealt with, but it all starts with honesty. And to be really honest, the human being I am, we have not had that. We haven't had that since day one. Now we're almost a year into it. I'm the last one to always know. Prime example, there was a court case supposed to be yesterday morning at 8 o'clock. I emailed asking for login information last week received no emails or phone calls back. And at 7.55 on Monday morning, I received a phone call saying, oh, by the way, that court case, we must not have gotten the information or you were confused. It's pushed back seven more days. It'll be next Monday. But those, hey, by the ways have happened 100% through the whole case. Hey, by the way, by the way. Yeah, I got a hey, by the way. Because I've made efforts to speak with Beth McCann. I've spoken to her second-in-command instead, who said, oh, by the way, when I said, you know, this doesn't look that great, DA's holding back information about a Denver police sergeant so involved in this horrible murder and assault case. What's up with that? And I got to, oh, by the way, Sergeant Dan Politica is no longer with the police force. I told you that earlier this week. Did you get that before I told you? Never did. Yeah, I had never heard of that until it was brought up between you and I. And that's another pay by the way. But we don't know if there's any traction to that either. I, I don't know. I haven't been told that by anybody. If Dan Politica were listening to this, what would you say to him? Um... You know, it's really emotional to begin with, and I try and take my personal emotions out of this, which is super difficult because my buy-in is 100 and to Bella and Darian and our families. But, you know, Dan, if you're listening to this, you know, on a private note from a human being to a human being, from a dad to a dad, if you could please reach out to me, you know, the knowledge I'm seeking isn't just out of a curiosity standpoint. You know, the knowledge I'm looking for out of this case isn't just to be seen or heard by others. You know, the the knowledge out of this case is to hopefully bring our community and human beings together so this doesn't happen again. You know, we just want to know know the the whys 
and what went on. And that's all we're looking for is just just the truth of what what transpired, what's gone on. Um, and we're almost a year into it, and I, I and the rest of the community and families and friends are still um, in the shadows, and I don't think it's fair. I don't think it's fair at all. And it's strange the media hasn't asked these questions. There's been a law passed in memory of Bella. It's a beautiful law. You support it. I support it. So does Darian. You know, Bella's beautiful life lives on. And part of it is she brought Darian into your life. My client, Darian Simon, what do you think of her boyfriend? <laughs> you know, as a dad, you try and be as non-judgmental. Some dads are very gruff when it comes to their daughters and boyfriends. And I've always been the, the dad to not judge and let them figure out who they are as people, who they want involved in their lives. And definitely some boyfriends have come and gone. Um, I was grateful they they were going. Bella started a relationship with Darian right at the beginning of this whole pandemic thing. And um, as a parent, it's, it's really hard when you can't meet a boyfriend face-to-face, shake his hand, sit down to dinner, say your hellos and your introductions, and get to know a human being that's super involved in in your family um, and brought brought to your front door kind of thing. So it was really hard and out of respect for Darian and his grandparents and family. You know, they were quarantined um, and they did a really great job of being quarantined through this whole pandemic and respectful of family and that. So I didn't get that opportunity before all of this had happened to sit down and shake Darian's hand. And I kept telling Bella, this is so awkward. You've been with a human being for for quite some time is so awkward not having a face-to-face interaction. Um, so as a father, I sit quietly and patient and just pray that it's fantastic. Um, Bella was in a little bit of a transition right as she met Darian. And we talked and she says, you know, my living circumstances aren't the best, Dad. I just, I need to figure out me. And I said, that's a really great place to be. Um, I will support you in that. I offered to buy her an apartment, a house, and fix it up and, you know, have her name on it, which is a blessing to have in life and have that opportunity to provide for your kids like that. So we looked at a few. She turned me down, which I didn't know what to say at that point. And she says, you know, I met this really great guy, and he has offered for me to stay at his place. And as a dad, I raised daughters to be independent and free thinking and provide for themselves, not to rely on a man to pay their cell phone or their way, regardless of any situation. I've raised young women to be that, and they were that. And she says, Dad, you know, this, he offered me to stay there. Um, I think it will be a great, great segue into life and our relationship together. And I said, well, be cautious, be careful, and as any parent would, it draws holy cow in your heart of just, I hope it's the right decision. And every time I talked to her, I could just feel this young woman blooming and glowing more and more every single time I talked to her. And I know for a fact, a huge portion of that was Darian. You know, just the creativity and love between those two, um, I could feel it in her voice and resonate through the phone every time I spoke with her and she's a very private human being, very low key. So 
getting information out of her, I can only ask, you know, you're on a two question. You ask more than two questions. It's kind of, oh, I got to get off the phone kind of thing. So we always joke there's a two question max in a conversation. So, um, but I always ask about Darian and how, how he was doing and how they were doing. And every response was just so enlightening and so full of joy. Um, it was amazing. So as of recent with obviously the situation happened, I've had an opportunity to get to know Darian and his family on a very different level. Um, you know, a level which I love, but I also wish the situation didn't drum up. I wish it could have happened in a little bit more natural form, but he's a fantastic soul and a really good human being. You know, I wish I had my head on the way he does at his age. It's just, it's so enlightening. And, you know, his, his branding and his clothing line that he's co-founder of, of, of be a good person and all that. He truly lives his life just like that. He tries to be a better rendition of himself every single day. You know, he's got a lot of weight on his shoulders that normal human beings in society probably don't have. You know, that's a pretty big motto to to follow in life and to be, you know. Yeah, I was thinking about that when you said, for Bella, be cautious, be careful. But then when you got to know Darian, you realized this guy heads up a huge organization that's devoted to be a good person. And what a great yeah. break for Bella to meet such a tremendous young man like Darian, who approaches things yeah. in such a positive way. And you are special to him. You are special to his family. You guys are bound up in this tragedy. But I'm happy that Bella conveyed to you her happiness being with Darian. Yeah, Bella's always expressed in a very low-key way to me happiness or not happiness. Her and I, truly as a human being, she is the female version. If I were to be a female in life, she would be the female version of me. Her and I are very much alike in characteristics physically and emotionally. So to see her bloom like that and to talk about Darian the way she did, talk about potentially being married and having kids and starting that life with him, it meant everything to me because I've never heard her say that in life. So um, I know for a fact that that truly was a true love that had transpired between both of them. And that's not just something that happens just because I know that Darian is a amazing soul inside as well. She was a college student at the time that she was murdered. She had beautiful yeah. aspirations. Bella was not just going to be a wife and a mother, but she was going to go far. Tell everybody what Isabella's aspirations were. Bella always sought to do better for people that couldn't do for themselves. She was always one of those human beings that grew for the underdog. Very similar to life situations she grew up in, not being as, you know, as a young parent, you're not financially as sound as you should be for for your children. So Bella didn't have always the best of the best. We tried to offer that in life, but we tried to show Bella that I'm not just giving you better than what I had in life. I'm trying to teach you better than I had in life. And she really took that mantra and ran with it. Out of high school, she went to LIM College, which is a laboratory institute of management. It's a very fashion forward, cutting edge college in New York for business and fashion. 
Um, she had a love for fashion. She had a love of business. After a year out at LIM, she decided, hey, I need to be smarter with my money and get some of my core classes knocked out. So she came back to Colorado and picked up classes at Metro, um, where she was currently a student um, when the situation happened. So um, very savvy human being. Like I said, very driven when it came to helping others become educated to helping better themselves. I bet she missed her daddy, too. I bet she had a little homesickness. She was a Colorado kid. She came back to Colorado. It was better to not spend all that money, especially during a pandemic, and then to find love with Darian, and then to have her life cut short. She had so many friends in this community. Tell us about the tributes that have poured out and which ones mean the most to you. Oh, man. Um, You know, Bella was, like I said, she was never about a platform or being seen or heard or anything like that. And, you know, there was an evening where her and I text often back and forth, good night kind of thing. And I had text and didn't get a reply back, which was very odd. So as a dad, I kind of try and give space the situation and what that is. And I text again with no response. The next morning, I finally get a response. And I was like, a phone call. I was like, geez, Bill, what, what happened? You didn't call me back. Like, is everything okay? And she says, I am so sorry, dad. I had a phone call. There was a spot on the 5280 deal where I could fill in for somebody that wasn't able to make their runway walk. I was like, wow, that's really cool. She says, yeah. So I was getting my makeup done and had to walk on the runway and it didn't finish up till later in the evening kind of thing. It was just not a big deal. I just didn't have an opportunity to call. And I was like, oh, okay, well, that sounds awesome. And then as a parent, I'm like, well, geez, you should have called me. I would have loved to come see it. And she just shrugged it off like, ah, no big thing. And then I look and she's like front and center on the 5280 fashion week and the brochures and things they have. And it's just, it really sets her off as that's who she was. It was this, this very non-platformed human being. Um, when she passed, you know, we have a candlelight vigil downtown where, where everything had happened. And I was in that moment trying to have a reflective time and then say thank you for everybody coming. And I stand up on this short wall where um, everything had happened downtown. And I look, and as far as my eyes can see, I can't see either way of where the crowd stops. Um, and I say the most amazing human beings, black, white, gay, lesbian, democratic, Republican. There was just no agenda, young, old. It was the most beautiful array of all different walks of life I had ever seen in my life. Um, And I realized at that point how many people she affected in the exact same way of just how amazing of a soul she was. She touched all walks of life and paths she crossed. That was her thing. it's just an amazing tribute to her soul and who she was as a person. Um, just a very soft, kind heart. You know, I, I think back of any angry days she had or anything like that. I, I can't really recollect angry days or curse words flying out of her mouth or anything like that. It just really wasn't, it wasn't her and it wasn't her thing. So um, that's really my memories of kind of who she was as a person and how she stood out. Um, as a human being. 
just like she came in when her daddy gave her a middle name of Joy. She touched so many lives, and we talk about your life. It matters the most. You deserve these answers, and you've asked respectfully for this information. It's not yet been forthcoming. Hopefully, it will be for the people of the state of Colorado, but you bring up that ballpark neighborhood, which is kind of new, dense. It's a showpiece of Colorado and Denver. People want to feel safe. And I can tell you, having been in this business for nearly four decades, when terrible crimes happen, people want to disassociate themselves, say, oh, that happened in a bad part of town, or it happened after midnight, or I would never be in that situation. Darian and Bella were walking their dog in their neighborhood when this happened for no reason out of nowhere. And all those people in the ballpark neighborhood, I bet they heard the rapid fire of that AK-47 being fired off over and over and over again. And they're traumatized by this too, right? So this has affected a lot more than just the Thales and Simon family. This is a Denver, Colorado situation, and some answers need to be forthcoming, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and that's our that's our biggest hurt down there is just you know, of course it affected us and our friends and family, but there's thousands of apartments down there. Um, and you always think, uh, one in a million, this is a one in a million situation until you are the million, till you are in that situation. And I think at this point that's that's truly what this comes down to is you know, we would like some answers. We want justice to be served and accountability to fall where accountability falls. Um, and that's what this really comes down to. I don't want this to happen to another family. I don't want, want this to happen to another father, another sister, another community. It's old. It's awful. It's a club that no parent or human being should have to be a part of. That's right. It's not an accept. It's not an acceptable thing in society, and it's become almost an acceptable thing on a daily basis. And I'm ready to put a stop to it. I'm done. The community's done. Well, we're not done. We're going to keep fighting. And I know you're not done, Josh. You already said it earlier. You will turn over every stone and all you want. You can't get justice. My God, if you got any kind of a court case resolution, your beautiful daughter's not going to walk in. We can't even pretend that justice is on the table, but you're entitled to the truth and you should not have to wait. And there's no good reason that the authorities can't tell you the answers to your good questions. I respect you so much. I'm so sorry for your loss, Josh, and I really appreciate you coming on my podcast. Thank you, Mr. Silver, and I appreciate your time as well. Take care. Bye now. All right, bye. Let me tell you what we do and we don't do at Springer and Steinberg. We do almost everything. We do not do end-of-life planning. That's Michael Bailey. But for all your other legal needs, give me a call. 303-861-2800. I look forward to speaking with you. Michael Bailey, you've been a lawyer for a decade and a half. I have that beat because I'm a lot older, but 
you and I have something in common. Uh, we both pride ourselves on being good attorneys and I've shared with you a little list I have, 20 ways to be a good lawyer. Do you want to go through a few of these right now and we'll keep going on future talks? What about number one, behave yourself? What does that mean to you? I mean, there's a whole slew of things that you can do as an attorney that are unbecoming or unseemly. You know, whether you break the ethical rules or if you just do things that are a little bit sneaky and underhanded, there's no need to do that. You do it the right way. You do it above board. And they need a steady, reliable person like you. Give out your contact information. Sure. My phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. That's how you get a hold of me. I mean, my my website is michaelbaileylawllc.com. And again, that's michaelbaileylawllc.com. You can get a hold of me that way too. If you want to keep following this story, then please subscribe on whatever podcast medium by which you acquire this sound and then leave a positive review. More than anything, push the podcast to your friends. Let them listen. Thank you. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Craig's Lawyer's Lounge is so much fun for me because I get to learn about other lawyers. Why did somebody decide to go to law school? And how did they become so successful? Fade has allowed me to meet Josh Maximon, who is a Boulder attorney. I've seen him around, but we really never conversed or interacted till fate brought us together on a terrible case out of Denver, a violent crime we will discuss. But let's learn about Josh. Josh, welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Well, it's good to be here, and I appreciate you for having me on. Let's establish, first of all, that you're qualified to be in the lounge. Are you an active Colorado <laughs> trial lawyer? I am. I'm a New York trial lawyer, and I'm also a uh, qualified practicing solicitor in England and Wales when I lived over there and took the bar exam. Now you're just showing up, but you are more than qualified <laughs> to be in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. And tell everybody how you became so smart. You must have grown up in a college town. I did. I grew up here in Boulder. My parents had been counterculture folks who had been in Berkeley, met in Berkeley on the campus during the heyday in Berkeley with Mario Savio and all sorts of counterculture ideas. My father was actually kicked out of the state of California in 1966. Well, you're rushing this story. There's a podcast. We got to go back, go slow. First of all, what was your <laughs> father's first name? So my father's first name was Shalom. Well, hello to you, but I asked you for your father's first name. <laughs> he grew up in Brooklyn, New York, very strict Jewish family that taught Hebrew is a first language, and we're scholars and uh, descendants of the Bar Shem Tov, which are Jewish mystics from the Ukraine. Now, that's not just any society. This is a lineage that goes back to King David. Am I right? You know your own history. Are you royalty? <laughs> 
I've been told. So although I haven't done the 23andMe to find out if it's actual royalty. Well, it comes down to, it's like the Supreme Court, it's whatever the Jewish authorities say. And if I'm not mistaken, the translation of Baal Shem Tov is one with a good reputation. This is a special family, right? Well, they always felt so, although they weren't so happy when my dad married a non-Jewish woman from California in terms of splitting up some of that bloodline and lineage. Right. This was the origin of the Hasidic community, and intermarriage happens. That's America. It's an interesting phenomenon. You lived it, but let's go back to Shalom, because he sounds like an interesting dude. Is he alive today? He isn't. He died in 1981, much too young. He was just a fascinating person, a really intelligent, great guy, but also just a spirit of activity and doing things that people kind of compared him to the character of Dean Moriarty from On the Road. He was friends in Berkeley with guys like Huey Newton, who didn't like any white people. He knew a lot of the Hells Angels. He, now, wait a second. Huey Newton didn't like any white people, but he liked your old man? Oh, he sure did. They were friends. And what did Shalom do for Huey? I think that he was just his own person, and he stood up to government, and he was a strong presence who really believed in ideas of the counterculture, about race, about the Vietnam War, about equal rights. So is your old man at the heart of the Berkeley free speech movement? He was at least there and very influenced by it, as was my mom. And he knew Mario Sabio? I'm not sure that he knew him that well, but he certainly there during that time, driving his convertible Cadillac up and down Telegraph Avenue. But my mom was on campus at the time, and it was a very formative period, really for, for the entire country, but certainly for them being there at that time. Is there a good book that we should read to know more about that era? Like On the Road. On the Road is a good one. I think the electric Kool-Aid acid test, which is Ken Kesey's whole crew, and describes what was happening with LSD experiments, but also different things that they were doing in the counterculture at that time. My dad was actually with Ken Kesey's group of merry pranksters, went out to meet with the Hells Angels out on a ranch in California. No way. And my dad was there for that reunion, which was really bringing together very different types of people. But I think both of those books get a little bit of the spirit of what that time was like and I think what my dad was really trying to achieve. Now, my Hebrews had about a preschool level. Shem Tov means good name. And your good name, Maximon, how did that come about? The name Maximon was something that was just changed at Ellis Island when my family immigrated in the late 1800s. It was changed to Maximon. We're not exactly sure what it was before that. My uh, ancestors had come from Russia. We think that the name was changed from Maximovsky, which was actually a Russian name that was bought out of 
a cemetery in order to avoid being in the Russian army years ago. So we think that the original name is Goodman, but we're not exactly sure how to connect some of those dots. Right, but what a cool name, Maximon. I romanticized it that, hey, we're part of this lineage, Baal Shem Tov, and so give us the maximum respect. I mean, Maximon, and you're in the business. We'll get to your law business, but if you want maximum returns, hire Josh Maximon. I mean, have you thought about that kind of advertising? I haven't done that one. Your dad spoke Hebrew as a little kid, grew up with it. Did he go to Israel? Did he know about Israel at the very beginning? He did. His family immigrated to Israel right after the War of Independence. In 1948, my grandparents moved to Israel from Brooklyn, and they took the boat over in 1949 and tried to make it in Israel at that time. It was difficult for them as they were there. They had difficulty making enough of a living to do it. My grandmother had been a elementary school teacher in Brooklyn, and she had a very solid wage there. My grandfather was a scholar and so didn't always have a revenue stream that was something to count on. So they eventually moved back to Brooklyn in about 1952, I believe, and then always dreamed of moving back to Israel. And so when my grandmother retired from New York Public Schools in the 70s, they moved to Israel in about 78 or 79 to the north of Israel and and lived there. Boy, what's going on in Israel right now? I know a little Yiddish, Pekel of Tzuris, which means basket of troubles over there. But Let's tell your family story. Best I can figure out, you come from the Pale of Settlement, Ukrainian area, Baal Shem Tov, this magnificent family. Then you go to Brooklyn, then to Israel. I'm talking about Shalom now. Then he goes to Berkeley, and then he goes to Boulder. That's right. What brought him to Boulder? Well, Boulder was the new hotspot for counterculture in America. And it's funny because, for example, Boulder itself was a dry county until 1967. So he came here and was seen as a real rabble rouser right from the start. And there were lots of other people coming to Boulder as well with ideas of changing the world, fighting the Vietnam War, changing America's views on race and gender equality. Right, but before they could do any of that, they needed alcohol, right? You needed booze on the hill. (laughs) Yeah. Tell everybody how they were part of Boulder history. You're old man. Shalom. I mean, it it was alcohol and it was other substances as well. And there were lots of people partaking in all of that. And so... Did he work in what industry? How did he make a living? When are you born? I'm born in 1971, so about four years after my mom came, five years after my dad came to Boulder. And I was born, my dad worked in the construction industry for a number of years. And then in the mid-70s, my dad got involved with rock and roll concert promoting. 
and he was initially the director of security for Feyline here in Colorado. And that role expanded to being in charge of concessions. And then eventually he started his own production company called Mighty Max Productions, where he put on different rock and roll shows here in Colorado. But I grew up, as did the Fay kids, around this rock and roll industry and concerts and concert venues, spending my summers at Red Rocks and winter nights at at McNichols Arena. But the rock and roll concert era was definitely a, a big part of my life. Wow. And you got to go behind the scenes? Did you get to hang out with anybody famous? Oh, sure. And it was a lot of fun. Did things like played basketball with Mick Jagger, with other bands, the Kinks. One that stands out to me is I was sitting at Folsom Field for a big show, and I was backstage by myself, and a guy comes up and pulls a chair up to talk to me. He says, hi, I'm Roger Daltrey, and sits down to have a conversation. And he was just a wonderful guy. I want to know about Mick Jagger on the basketball court. Did he have good moves? He was athletic. He was into jogging. He was into being in shape. He wasn't a great basketball player. Could you make moves like Jagger, or did you go right around him? Nobody can make moves like Jagger. Not sure that they would work in the NBA, but they are their unique moves for sure. At this point, we need to interject that you are a superb athlete. Tell everybody about that. What did you play growing up in Boulder? Well, I played lots of sports, but my main sport was soccer. And I played in college at the University of Washington and then the University of Colorado. And then after college, I went and played professional soccer in Eastern Europe, in Slovakia. And it was a team that was in the second division, which really is the equivalent of like a triple-A baseball or the D-League in basketball, a notch just under the top level of European soccer. Yeah, the Denver Bears or Denver Zephyrs. I grew up That's in right. AAA. You see, you made it to AAA. Wow. And was it a cool life being a professional athlete? It was amazing. It was such an interesting time in Eastern Europe. I went over there in 1994, which was right at the time that the Czech Republic and Slovakia were splitting. When I was in Slovakia, I was really the first American that any of them had ever known. There wasn't any English spoken anywhere around. So it was fascinating from that perspective. It was also, for me, really fun to be in a society where soccer was the most important sport around. And in the town that we played in, I played in a town called Levice, which is uh, in southern Slovakia, ethnically about half and half Slovak and Hungarian. And in that part of the world, in Levice, we were absolute gods in that town. To walk around was really fun. The town really got behind us, and we were appreciated. And the other thing was that we were, that the year that I was there, in the middle of an effort to make it up into the first division. In European soccer, if you win the lower division, you go up to the higher division and the other team goes down. 
So we were playing for our chance to get into the major leagues. We were one and two with another team the entire year and lost to them on the final game of the season so that we didn't get promotion into the major league. And it was actually a little bit of a scandal about how that happened. Dang. It brings to mind so many questions about soccer fans. You're saying it's a level of sports idolizing that we really don't know in America. Is there anything comparable? For our major sports, I think it's comparable. It's just not for soccer. So the way that people treat football players or basketball players. Like Peyton Manning was walking down the street in Denver. I expect he'd be mobbed. You're saying exactly in your town, you guys were all like Peyton Manning. And even without we wearing your jerseys. We were. And it, it was fun. And, and kids would follow us around. And they would ask for autographs all over the place, which was something that I wasn't used to at all. I was a player that wasn't getting a whole lot of playing time. I was probably about 17th or 18th on the depth chart. And so for really a lesser-known person to be well-respected in the town, it was really a thrill for me. But I'm sure you scored some professional goals, right? I did in exhibition games, but I never got one during the season. Okay, how did you celebrate the exhibition goal? (laughs) a run to the corner shirt over the head (laughs) a mob from other players because we had played against the first division team from our neighborhood when that happened so it was a big deal right because there's so little scoring in soccer i prefer a sport called basketball maybe you've heard of it (laughs) i i do like basketball as well You guys are all good at basketball because you have good footwork, soccer players. Take Nikola Jokic, but please don't take him away from Denver. That guy's the MVP, correct? No question. And I keep looking at the stats to see if if they're going to try to pull somebody ahead of him, but I don't think so. I think he, on the stat lines, is the MVP and he's appreciated by all of the pundits. It's fun to see people like Charles Barkley and Shaquille O'Neal, Reggie Miller, talking about him in such glowing terms because I think he really has changed the game. He is, in my mind, the best passing big man ever to play the game. Not only are you making that bold statement, not so bold now, he's a prohibitive favorite, but you've been saying it for a while, and if I'm not mistaken, and we've advertised the product on my podcast, do you have the Joker for MVP official t-shirt with Serbian on it? Yes. (laughs) I do. Not only do I have it, but I've I've bought one for several friends because it's an important thing to advertise. That's good logic. Well, we both like sports and we end up talking about it a lot, but how's your life going? Tell us about your law practice and what made you decide to become a lawyer. You were on your way to being the next Pele. If only you could have scored a little more. (laughs) Well, I definitely saw the ceiling from where I was. On our team in Levitze, we had a guy who was a national team player and he was really amazing. And I saw that I could do it for a time, but there were limitations to how good I was going to be. So it was a great experience for me, but wasn't going to be what I did for the rest of my life. 
I had always been interested in law school. It seemed like a place where you could do a lot of good to fight for the little guy, fight for people that didn't have a voice, and to fight for certain things that America believes in. And I really, I was brought up believing that things like the civil rights movement, the Holocaust, gender equality, and issues regarding the Vietnam War, those were all always really big topics in my house. And so to be able to join a profession where you can make a difference in these things that are so important, that was really the pull for me to, to go into law school. And so has it been a good career? When did you first become a lawyer and tell us your journey? Sure. So I became a lawyer in 1998. I graduated from NYU Law School. And the first thing that I did was I worked in Alabama for a professor of mine named Brian Stevenson. You might have heard about a recent book and movie called Just Mercy is about his story and setting up a capital defense clinic and center in Alabama to um, provide representation for originally people on death row in Alabama. So that was something that I did in law school and something that I did initially coming out of law school. He's a remarkable guy, famous as hell. So did you go into criminal defense? What's your area of practice? I worked in Alabama. I clerked for a federal judge here in Denver. And then I worked at a big firm in London. I mentioned that earlier. We had clients like the London Stock Exchange. The London Stock Exchange was considering merging with NASDAQ at the time. So it was a different kind of practice, a transactional practice, but very interesting. And I worked in London doing that for a while. And then I came back to Colorado Worked at a big firm in Denver called Brownstein for a couple of years and then started a small firm after that in 2003 where the focus was really on criminal defense as well as personal injury plaintiff cases. You grew up in Boulder. Most of the people in the world got to know Boulder, Colorado through Mork and Mindy. Was that part of your life, Josh Maxmont? Well, it's funny. It was in several ways. And I'll go back to a, a story back in Colorado, but I'll tell a later one. In law school, I had a job interview at this fancy law firm in the World Trade Center. And uh, I was in this interview, and it was really tense. And the head partner leaned over to me and said, you know, Mr. Maximon, it says you're from Boulder, Colorado. Isn't that where Mork was from? And I said, actually, sir, Mork was from Ork. And I thought he would find it funnier than he did. He didn't laugh that much. I found it funny, but I knew that. <laughs> I'm an aficionado, yeah. too. I mean, there aren't that many Colorado sitcoms. Keep going. Well, so Mork was filmed here, and Robin Williams came to town to do a stand-up show at Mackey Auditorium in Boulder. And my dad was the person who put that show on. And after the show, we went backstage and Robin was hyped up. It, it, it was the funniest thing that I'd ever seen. We went backstage, and my dad said to him, 
hey, we have a concert tomorrow. The Beach Boys are here in town at Folsom Field. Do you want to come? And he said, sure. He said, well, I'll give you a backstage pass, but only if you'll babysit my kid. How old were you? I was nine years old. So Robin Williams said, great, we'll do it. And he came and picked me up in the morning and took me over to the stadium. And we were hanging out backstage and he was doing all sorts of crazy stuff. And eventually the babysitting part kind of fell by the wayside. When you say Robin Williams was doing all sorts of crazy stuff, I imagine that (laughs) were comic (laughs) antics. Right? <laughs> exactly. Uh, With he, everyone. Was he doing controlled substances? He definitely was. That was during his period. You know, I'd heard rumors of cocaine later on, certainly matches the behavior that was going on. But at the same time, he was a warm, wonderful guy who was hilarious and generous and really decent to me as a kid. Really a good experience to hang out with him that day. Wow, what a babysitting experience. Thanks for sharing that. Any other encounters come to mind? You hung out around all these celebrities. What about the Beach Boys? Did you get to know them too? Oh, sure. All the acts that came through, I would meet them in some way or another. And certain ones stick out. Certainly Roger Daltrey, certainly Robin Williams. Sticks came off of an encore set at Nick Nichols Arena, and the, the drummer gave me his sticks that I still have. Certain things like that do stand out quite a bit. And what do you do with all that athleticism you told us about? Do you still play soccer, or are you on to other sports? I do still play soccer, and then a passion of mine for many years has been bike racing, road bike racing and mountain bike racing. I just competed in a 12 hours of Mesa Verde mountain bike race this past weekend. I was going to do that, but I decided to take a nap instead. (laughs) I have a podcast put on every week with really incredible (laughs) guys like you, your story, your dad's story. Let's end the interview talking about Shalom, how appropriate. He didn't live as long as he should have. When did he pass? He passed in 1981. He died of a drug overdose, and I was there. How old were you? I was 10 years old. It was rough. It was very rough because he and I were very close. He took me everywhere. I was really part of his life in every way, his work life, his personal life. And it also put a huge burden on my mom. They were divorced already, but now she was raising a son as a single parent. And that wasn't easy for her, but she provided just a wonderful home environment and opportunity to grow up here in this town and have lots of great people around me. Do you feel the spirit of your father in you? For sure. And I don't know what exactly you call that, but I'm very thankful of having a good memory. So my time with him is really well preserved. I remember him well. I'm close with his family. I'm close with his friends who still still contact me because he was such an important person in their lives. And I still feel very connected to who he was and what he cared about. At the same time, being critical of certain things about 
that time period and drug use and irresponsible things that happen for him as a parent, I definitely take that seriously in my role as a parent not to do some of the irresponsible things that that he did. How many kids do you have? I have two kids. I have a, a daughter who's a freshman in college and another who is a sophomore in high school. And it's funny you say the spirit of my dad. In some ways, I can see it in both of my kids. And it comes in the form of being very funny, extremely intelligent, and just really great people to be around. I see some of him in them. Your dad in his short life moved around so much, and yet you are bolder. You're a bolder guy. Is that how you want to be? You went to Boulder High. Is that going to be your home forever? Certainly. I grew up here. I went away for college to Seattle. I went away for law school to New York. I went away to live in Slovakia. I worked in New York. I worked in London. I lived in Ireland when my wife was in medical school there at Trinity College. So I've definitely been a lot of other places, and Boulder is something that certainly keeps pulling me back. I have a great connection to this place. Well, you are one of Colorado's most respected attorneys. And now that I'm working with you, I am impressed. If it's okay with you, Josh, we will come back and we'll talk about the case we have in common. You representing Joshua Thales. I represent Darian Simon. Is that okay? We'll come back and talk about that. That sounds great. Thanks for sharing your very interesting life story. You are within inches of being the most interesting lawyer ever to be in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. I appreciate you saying that. I'm sure it's not true, but I appreciate you saying that. All right. We'll be right back. Okay. Thank you. Hey, it's my honor to talk to you about the Colorado Hawks. This is a good program helping kids, underprivileged kids, kids with dreams of playing sports, kids who could use help to go to college. The Colorado Hawks produce high-level athletes in boys and girls basketball and girls soccer. The program prides itself on keeping kids off the streets, helping underprivileged youth earn opportunities they might not get otherwise. Most importantly, the Colorado Hawks produce an affordable program that has never turned an athlete away due to expense. The Hawks love Nikola Jokic, just like we do, and currently have a t-shirt selling fundraiser with 100% of the proceeds going right back into this program. Head to Jokic for MVP, or if it's easier to spell, and it is Joker for MVP, J-O-K-E-R for MVP, Get a great high-quality shirt that says, you guessed it, Jokic for MVP. And help a great organization at the same time. Let's come together to support a program that has helped to provide so many opportunities for Colorado's young people. That's Jokic for MVP to buy a shirt with all proceeds going to the Colorado Hawks organization. Thank you. If I had to guess, that's one of the biggest topics that must come up in your practice. How can I provide for my kid's education, my grandchild's education? And aren't there some tax benefits to doing it certain ways, not others? There can be. Depending on how you structure a trust, you can get a tax break on your taxes now. 
You can get a tax break on any estate tax in the future. So let's say that Donald Sturm has $2 billion, which I don't know if he, how much he's worth now. You know, what? Well, let's say he's got $2 billion and he decides to donate all $2 billion to some sort of charities, whether it be the University of Denver School of Law or something like that. Well, if you have, you know, the estate tax limit is $11.7 million. So anything above $11 million would be taxed as an estate. So that would mean if he's got $2 billion and, you know, 40% estate tax, there's be something like, you know, $800 million worth of estate tax. He says, well, I don't want to pay that. So I'm going to donate all of it to charitable causes. Well, a donation to a charitable cause is going to be exempt from the estate tax. So then he wouldn't have to pay any estate tax. You know, I don't know if he's that charitably minded. And there's, there's certainly a lot of other sophisticated techniques to use to get around estate taxes, but if you're charitably inclined, it certainly can give you quite a tax break, either from an estate tax perspective or an income tax perspective, depending on how you structure things. It's all about planning. That's why I'm so glad I discovered you, Michael, and I get nothing but great feedback. I feel good about sending people your way because it means they can check that off their box of what needs to be done and they need a steady, reliable person like you. Give out your contact information one more time. Sure. My phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. That's how you get a hold of me. I mean, my my website is michaelbaileylawllc.com. And again, that's michaelbaileylawllc.com. LLC.com. You can get a hold of me that way too. Now, back to the Craig Silverman Show. Let's talk about Denver. Sad events of June 10 of last year. Your client, Joshua Thales, you were on that interview. Thank you for allowing me to interview your client. I was blown away by what he had to say. How did you first become aware of the situation and get involved? Well, first of all, I was very moved by what he was saying as well. I know this story pretty well. I know what he's gone through. But listening to him describe his relationship with his daughter and what happened and the community response to it was really touching. I definitely felt that. He contacted me several months after the incident, and the concern was that there was lots of information that was out there about this AK-47 that we didn't know about. And he was having a hard time getting answers from the people who had that information. Right. So he contacted me to help get information. That's been really my job so far. And although we have received a few pieces of information, there's a lot that's unknown and it's frustrating for him not to have that information. You know, as a criminal defense lawyer, we hear all the time about prosecutors who are motivated by trying to help victims and try to provide some kind of justice or closure when justice is impossible and that they're motivated by helping those victims. And I was really expecting that from the prosecutors in this case, that they would understand Josh Dallas's pain and really try to fill in and provide the information that we've been trying to find out about. 
mostly having to do with Sergeant Politica and the assault weapon that was used to murder Isabella Thales. We've been on parallel paths. I represent Darian Simon, who has survived, was grievously wounded in the shooting that killed Isabella Thales, a blessed memory. And we both have been seeking information. My God, we can't get these families justice, but they're entitled to information. And I worked 16 years as a prosecutor in the Denver DA's office, and I always felt the case was about the victims, not me. Of course, I represent the people. They can't tell me what to do, but I'm going to do everything in my power to ease their pain. The last thing that you or I want to do is screw up the prosecution, but honestly, a sixth grader could prove this case. It's not a difficult case. Let's not pretend that it is. Michael Close did the shooting. He used an AK-47. And we heard this intriguing fact that he acquired it from a Denver police sergeant. And of course, we wanted to know more, but it's not just us. We wanted to know more to tell the victims, to tell Darian Simon. He wants to know, and Josh Thales wants to know. And part of what we do is about helping people just get information to put their mind at ease. And to me, it's one of the best parts of being a lawyer, isn't it? Josh Maxmont? Absolutely. And if we can provide that family that suffered through this terrible tragedy some modicum of solace, then it's incredibly rewarding. That's one of the reasons why we do this job. And there are so many shooting cases in the news, police shooting, body cams, victims saying, we want to see the body cams of our father getting shot. And I don't blame them. I think the truth should come out as long as it doesn't affect the prosecution. Can you think in any way, Josh, how Joshua Thales or Darian Simon, knowing the truth about that AK-47, would taint the jury down the road? I've really thought about it a lot, Greg, and I can't think of one way that it impacts their case. And we've been told by the prosecutors that they're not giving us this information about the weapon because they want to protect the case. But there's no way that the information that they would provide to us could impact it. And it makes it seem like there are other motivations there. And the other motivations appear to me to be protecting the Denver Police Department and protecting this Denver police sergeant who had this weapon and provided it somehow, either whether it was a gift or whether it was loaned or whether it was stolen, provided it to his close friend who committed this terrible murder. One of the things that we think about in law all the time is a concept of causation. But for something, would something else happen? And the really difficult thing about this case is that but for Sergeant Politica's having this AK-47 and getting it to Michael Close, Isabella Thales would be alive. Your client would not be so terribly injured. And that is a heavy thing to say. He is a causation of this terrible tragedy. And we can't get the Denver Police Department or the Denver DA's office to respond to us about what happened there? 
And this is significant from a legal standpoint. I don't know if the information slipped out of the mouth of the assistant DA who called me and said, you know, Craig, insofar as an entanglement of the Denver police and Denver DA's office, Sergeant Politica is no longer with the Denver police. I said, really? And then I told you, had you ever heard that before I told you? I hadn't. And it's interesting to contrast that with what I was told by Sergeant Politica's lawyer, who told me that there had been a hundred percent clearance of Dan Politica by the Denver Police Department with reference to this situation. And in fact, Dan Politica had waived his Fifth Amendment right and given a full interview with the Denver Police Department at the time they were investigating it. So that statement of clearance and full disclosure and waiver of the Fifth Amendment doesn't make any sense with what you're telling me from the district attorney that we should somehow feel okay that Sergeant Politica is not working with the force. I don't know what the circumstances of that are or not. I don't know if he's a police officer with the Denver Police Department. I don't know what his status is. And I don't know whether he should be a police officer or not. And that depends on some of that information. I don't know if the gun is stolen or not. I don't know when it was reported stolen or not. I don't know how the AK-47 was stored. I mean, we had two laws passed recently in Isabella Thales's name signed by Governor Polis. In one of them, it says that stolen firearms need to be reported within five days. The other one says that you need to store these weapons correctly. And it appears that in this case that's named after her, the sergeant of the Denver Police Department violated both of those new laws and is not being called out for it. Nobody's even talking about it. So I don't understand what's happening with the Denver Police Department or the DA's office. And I am very interested in finding out more about the statement he made to you that Sergeant Politica is no longer working in the Denver Police Department. I carried a badge for 16 years. My side of the case, the Darian Simon side, is full of law enforcement and affection for law enforcement. We already heard Joshua Thales say the same thing. We've tried to work on this behind the scenes for months to deliver this information to our clients who really want to know the truth about every aspect of this situation. You've been working behind the scenes as well. We've shared our frustration and we've decided to do this podcast. Tell us what we do know about Sergeant Politica, what we have to guess about, and what you think is going on here. Well, we do know that he has had at least one previous incident where he was reprimanded. Sergeant Politica, do we know for what? There is an order that has to do with an assault. He was off duty and participated in an assault. We know that he at some point had an arms dealer's license. And we're not sure when that lapsed or not. We have been told by, and I don't know if this was something that slipped out again, we have been told that he reported the AK-47 missing 12 days after the shooting. 
which seems like a long time considering the fact that Mr. Close texted Sergeant Politica before the shooting occurred saying that he was going to be doing the shooting, it appears from my reading of the preliminary hearing, but also made a telephone call to him after this text admitting to what had happened. Man, there's so many unanswered questions. When was this gun stolen? How was it stolen? And why isn't there a charge for stealing the weapon? Exactly. It makes no sense. Was that weapon stolen or not? And when did he discover that? You would think the state legislature would want to know. I mean, the governor, too. This is a matter of statewide concern. And my God, we've talked about your beloved Boulder, Colorado, the shooting there now in Colorado Springs. But we don't want Isabella Thales's shooting to go by the wayside. This was a tragedy in our community. And we need to know all the answers. I've been stunned that the media hasn't followed up on this so far. To have a prominent sergeant from the Denver Police Department at the center of this huge case, it makes it really unique. And the fact that there hasn't been any digging in from any of the agencies that we talked about or the press is interesting. Why is it that Sergeant Politica isn't being looked at more carefully? Because, as I was talking about earlier with the causation, if he didn't have that AK-47, Isabel Thales would be alive today. Right. And maybe he is innocent in this. You know, he has free agency. We've both spoken to his lawyer. He knows we're out there looking for answers. Seems to me there's a decent thing to do for a guy like Josh Thales. Wasn't that impactful to hear your client say what he had to say to Sergeant Politica? It was. It was. And whether Sergeant Politica takes him up on this opportunity to fill in some of these gaps, I'll be interested to see. Right. And here are the simple questions I would have for Sergeant Politica. When did you purchase that weapon from who? How much did it cost? What were you going to do with it? Where did you possess that weapon? For what reason? How did you store that weapon? Was it in Denver where there's an assault weapon ban? Did you store it loaded? What about all those assault weapon magazines? We heard about those in the preliminary hearing when Close was arrested in Pine Junction, Colorado, but neither the DAs nor the defense went into how the weapon was acquired. Were these magazines legal in Colorado? Where did he get the ammunition? When? How many different magazines did he have for what reasons? To resell or for personal use or for what? Was that gun regularly used? Was it functioning well? How recently had he taken it to the range? Was it cleaned? Was it ever shared? We've learned about the relationship just bits and pieces. It didn't really come out in the pH, but we've heard that Close and Politica knew each other growing up in Lakewood. Is that your understanding, Josh? It is. The other thing that came up during the preliminary hearing was that Mr. Close had had some mental health issues and that it was concerning enough that Sergeant Politica was going to be taking him to a mental health provider the next day, which certainly is something that you would think he would think about in relation to this AK-47. 
Had he shown it to Mr. Close? Had he fired it? How often had he checked on knowing where that weapon was? And how does he think that Michael Close, his close friend, was able to take that from his house? Aren't there gun safety devices? Aren't there combination locks, trigger locks? What are the circumstances of the alleged theft of an AK-47? I've been doing this about four decades. I've heard about break-ins at gun stores, but to steal that kind of weapon from a Denver police sergeant? Say what? Exactly. That case by itself, take away the shooting. If you read in the paper today that somebody broke into the house of a Denver police sergeant and stole an AK-47, that is a big crime, and that's big news. And it's been buried and, importantly, not charged. Why is it that the DA's office hasn't charged Michael Close was stealing this AK-47 if that's what they've been told happened. It's not a jurisdictional issue because even if it happens, say, in Jefferson County, it's still connected to this crime. You can add it on. And we both know that you can add charges whenever, wherever. When we ask the prosecutors, we get hubba-da-bubba-da. I, I don't understand the answers. And they claim they need Politica as a witness. What is he going to invoke his Fifth Amendment privilege? We have a right to know. We represent the victims. And as for me, thank God Darian survived, but he suffered a battery. It's a one-year statute of limitations. You know that, Josh. It puts me behind the eight ball not to get facts to do my job for my client who would like to sue Michael Close for what he did. Absolutely. And the statement that we've received consistently has been that they don't want to jeopardize their criminal case against Michael Close. And from my perspective, as somebody who's done criminal defense for a long time, I'm not seeing any way they could jeopardize their case. And it really, there's some other motivation in play for them not to provide us this information because it's critical to these victims and being able to process what they've gone through, but also potentially to to look at remedies in the future. We're going to keep digging. That's the purpose of a civil suit, because I want to put people under oath. I want Dan Politica to sit across from me and answer these questions, not for me, but for Darian Simon, for Joshua Thales. And we know that Politica knew close had just broken up with a girlfriend. He knows a lot about Michael Close that we'd like to know. I mean, he was a complete stranger to Isabella and Darian. My God, I've dealt with a lot of crime in my life, but this one especially gets to you, doesn't it? It sure does. And what you're saying really resonates that we know that they have the information that we're trying to get. We know that they've done exhaustive interviews with Kelsey Thompson because they talked about it at the preliminary hearing. We know they've done a full interview of Sergeant Politica because they talked about it at the preliminary hearing. And his lawyer told me that he had waived the fifth and given an extensive interview. We know that Sergeant Politica talked with the investigating officer in the afternoon while they were still in the process of investigating things. So it's very frustrating when we know they have the information that we would like to know, 
and they won't provide it to us. I would have done it as a prosecutor. The Victim Rights Act came in right toward the end of my situation, but under Norm Early, Dale Tooley before him, we put victims first, and that was a motto of mine, placing victims first. Darian Simon has right to know. Joshua Thales has right to know. Anna Thales has right to know the answers to these questions. What are you going to do, Josh, to make sure that happens? Just what you were describing earlier. We are not going to give up. We are going to keep digging, and we are going to get the answers to these questions one way or another. And whether that is going to be in a deposition or in a trial or even in a phone call, we'll see if there's any kind of response to the plea that Josh Dallas made to Sergeant Politica just recently. We've reached out to the DA's office. They're aware of this podcast. And some of the answers I'm getting just don't make sense. And it's not just Darian and Josh and Anna and Lucia, all the people affected by this. It is the people of the state of Colorado. And the Denver Police Department responded in massive numbers. This was an active shooter with an AK-47. Thank God he stopped shooting after murdering Bella and wounding Darian, and then he tried to escape, but he can't escape. There's another guy who knows the answers. We know the truth is out there. It will come out. But I would think the people of Colorado deserve answers, especially as we debate all sorts of issues regarding police and shootings and violence. This is something that should interest everybody in Colorado. Am I right, Josh? I couldn't agree with you more. And it's unique. Sergeant Politica's role in the middle of this makes it unique and makes these issues very important. Raises issues about firearms, about assault weapons in general, about police training, police involvement in terms of cover-up for police officers when they're doing things that are inappropriate. We're seeing that in the Floyd case or all sorts of other cases that have happened recently. And the people of Colorado are going to be interested to know what the real circumstances are here. They need to know. Right. Maybe there's an innocent explanation. Hell, Sergeant Politica, come on my podcast. Maybe you are an innocent victim. Maybe you safeguarded those weapons. But why in God's name? Was it not reported until 12 days afterwards? I don't know if that's a fact. We get little bits and pieces of information, maybe. That's not fair to Sergeant Politica, but when they won't tell us the answer, it's easy to assume the worst, right? Sure is. Well, let's try to get to the answers. I feel so privileged to get to know you on this joint quest, and I can't thank you enough for participating in the podcast making your client, Joshua Thales, available. Your last thoughts, Josh Maxmont. Well, I feel the same way. It's a privilege working with you on this case, and I feel convinced that with us working together, we're going to be able to get these answers that our clients deserve. Thanks a million, man. Let's stay in touch. Thank you. Sounds good. All right. Okay. Bye. Bye. Wow. I graduated CU Law School in 1981. And now here it is, 2021. 
I'm coming up on 40 years. It's flown by. I keep learning. But I know things. And I'm available to be your lawyer. I have a great law firm behind me. Springer and Steinberg. We do it all. 303-861-2800. 303-861-2800. I look forward to speaking with you. Every Saturday morning, 9 a.m. Colorado time, I publish a new podcast. Get it straight right then to your smartphone. Please subscribe. Thank you. This is the 44th episode, and this is the first time ever that I think we've sat in my studio, maskless, and listened to your music. What a song you have for us this week. Our troubadour, Dave Gunders, welcome. Thank you, Craig. How's it going? You know, we just had a powerful show, and your song is powerful about somebody coming to a decision, moving forward, leaving some bad things in the past, not forgetting about them. Anyway, we've had a heck of a show, and it occurs to me we may have a lot of new listeners, so can I take a stab at introducing you? Please. All right. Last week, you revealed, and it kind of inspired me, why not talk about our main work, you, Lookout Renovations. You're busy as hell because you're great at remodeling. Anybody can find you, Lookout. Lookout Renovation. And then you are a professional musician, and you are performing all the time. You're about to go up to Boulder, where you made quite a name for yourself, Tell everybody the various band incarnations that has lead singer and guitarist David Gunders. Well, presently, there's two bands I play with, the Mighty Twisters. These are friends of mine for many years. And I'm also in a band called Papa Mo and the Vipers. We do more New Orleans-style music. You are prolific. And there's our 44th, and we have 44 original Dave Gunders compositions and another beauty today, we've had a powerful show, and it's been a week full of turmoil for Congresswoman Cheney. That's really something, the way the Republican Party is splintering. I'm on the side of truth as opposed to the big lie, and I never thought I'd say it, but way to go, Miss Cheney from Colorado College. I'm proud of her. What about you? I am too, and I'm proud of you, Craig. Thank you. <laughs> no, yeah. I'm, I'm proud of you for bringing so much to bear, so much of the, of the news and, and uh, putting your own thoughts to it. An independent thinker is, is a welcome addition to any day in the world of radio listening or podcast listening. Well, that's cool. And Israel is in turmoil. You've been there more than I have. It's terrible. We hope for peace. And it's interesting the way the cable networks are covering this. It's a new day, and Israel needs a lot of prayers right now, wouldn't you say? I would. I would. I just hope that there's a ceasefire called soon so that the diplomats can get in and, and talk without more killing. Right. And that's, again, where your song is apropos. There's been killing. There's been warfare. But we want peace. We want shalom. And if we're going to have it, then we need to start over right now. And we need to put the past behind us. Tell us about your beautiful song, 
you and I start now. This song is about the differences between people and how we can overcome those differences. If we desire friendship, if we want peace, if we want friends, we can look past the differences and find common ground. You know what I'm looking past? It's the pandemic. And you and I have taken countless walks. We're neighbors. We're good friends. Our dogs love each other. In fact, right now with our dog sitting in the studio, my dog, Scuggy, look at him wag his tail. <laughs> he likes you better than me right now. That's no. a strange turn. No. He sees daddy's busy. Right. But we are dog lovers, and I love your music. You are playing various parts in this song. Tell us what's going on. And is that you whistling during this? That's me whistling. I call this my Andy of Mayberry song. It harkens to a time, a simpler time. So it's an acoustic oriented song, acoustic guitar. Let's see what else. It's got the whistling and some harmonica. And some harmony from a beautiful backup singer. Is it nepotism again? Is that Rachel Gunders I hear? No, it's this is this is meritorious. Rachel Rachel earned a spot on this song. She does great. Tell everybody, since they don't know you, that above and beyond everything else, you are a wonderful father of two daughters, a beautiful husband, Elisa. That's gotta be number one, right? It is, Craig. So a shout out to Rachel on this song and my other my older daughter, Sarah Gunders, both of them sing on a number of my songs. Yes. Josh Thallis had two daughters. Let's dedicate this song to Isabella Joy Thallis. May her memory be for a blessing. This song by our troubadour, Dave Gunders. You and I start now.
catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bacon. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. <laughs> now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want, and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at mblawllc.com. Now back to the Fred Silverman Show. So there you have it, folks. If you have information about this situation, please give me a call, 303-861-2800, 303-861-2800. That's my law firm. That's what I do for a living. This podcast is important to me. I hope you enjoy this episode. There are 43 others. Look at the guest list. I think you'll find others that you would enjoy a lot. We are going to keep covering this situation. And I'll bring you the latest every week on the podcast. We want to know on behalf of the victims, all there is to know about that AK-47 that was used to end the life of beautiful Bella. I thank you for listening. See you next week. Thank you. Tell a friend and please subscribe and rate this show. If you'd be so kind, we are on every major podcast platform. And a special thank you to my producer, Nick, who was there at the birth of this show and will always be connected. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.